0: Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration, if you're just visiting. Happy Chinese New Year to all my brothers and sisters. I still accept red envelopes. I, I still accept red envelopes. Um, and the, the crackling you hear outside, it's not the regular Oakland gunfire. That's, that's my people celebrating. So... Um, if you hear it, don't be scared. Anyway, we're in Jonah chapter 3. Um, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Jonah, uh, a book that we've, we've been finding has a ton of irony, uh, full of comedy. And now here we are picking up in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's start right in there. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And preach to it the message that I tell you. Isn't verse 2 of chapter 3 really similar to verse 2 of chapter 1? Which brings me to a point I'd like to make. God, God doesn't usually move, um, move on to just other things when, when there's a previous instruction that hasn't been followed. It's not like God forgets what, what he has instructed you to do earlier and um, just kind of, oh, that's all right. He remembers um, my wife and I, we, we don't argue or fight all that much. Actually, not much at all. And we have disagreements and, and we, we discuss our differences. But but is there hardly ever what we would what we would uh, determine as a fight or an argument. But but during these discussions that we have, she often accuses me and, and rightfully so of changing the subject. Um, for example, I'll be teasing her. She'll instruct me to stop. Shortly later, I'll start teasing her again. She'll say, stop. And then I'll say, honey, you're wearing a really nice outfit today. <laughs> and nothing's changed. The instructions are still the same. Stop. But, but I'm just hoping that I'm not going to get into trouble. And that she'll just take my compliment and then move on. And then she'll say, you're trying to change the subject. See, God doesn't just move on. The subject doesn't change. He doesn't get distracted with, with something else and, and forget a previous instruction he, instruction he's given you. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Last week's message um, pointed out some, some patterns in the language to this story. That, that God is up to something great. And that Jonah is on his way down. And I'd like to bring to our attention another word that, that God often has for us. It's the word Go. And as Christians, we tend to focus on the antonym of go, don't we? We focus on stop. Oftentimes, after we become Christians, we're told to stop. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. All these different things that we're supposed to stop doing. And Christians, especially newer ones, are pressured into stop doing, stopping to do things. And sometimes they're th- sinful things, so, so it's good. But sometimes it's not. And now I'm not I'm not saying that it's it's bad to stop certain things in your life. And please don't understand me on this point. There are some things that I believe are are really good to stop doing. And there there are actions that are sinful. There are actions that are that are just not beneficial. But I don't think the Christian life is simply to stop what we're doing. The Christian life is about action. The Christian life is about doing the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and gives him some action steps, says arise, go. And this term arise, go is actually quite fascinating. This, this order from God was used for several of the Bible characters, and I want to share uh, some of them with you. Let's start out with Jacob. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, God tells Jacob to go to Bethel. And just a little bit of background, Bethel is, is where Jacob fled when he tricked his brother Esau into selling his birthright. And so you go back a few chapters in Genesis to chapter 27. And this is where we find Esau so angry with Jacob that he, he wants to kill him. So Jacob runs to Bethel away from his brother. And Bethel's where God made some promises or Jacob made some promises to God. He, he promised to be faithful. He promised to remember that that's where God had met him. And he promised to tithe on all of God's blessings. And, and you know, God blessed him for that. And now now fast forward back to chapter 35 in Genesis and ask yourself, why did God tell him to go back there or go there at all? And God had him go there to put away his idols, to clean up his act and to change, to lead his family to God and to get him back to the place of blessing. Now, Moses was told to arise, go in Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse 12. And this was the, the rebellion at Mount Sinai where the people were rescued, were just rescued from the Egyptians, and then now Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and down at the bottom of the hill they're having this freak fest, right? So God tells Moses, get down there. You've got to calm down the freak fest, right? And, and it's through his intercession that those people are saved. And another, another person he tells to arise, go, is Joshua. Joshua is told to lead the people and go over the Jordan to the promised land. The, the place of promise. The place of rest. The place of wealth and victory. After wandering in the wilderness for so long, it was a place of blessing. And in Judges chapter 7, verse 9, Gideon is told to arise, go, to the camp of the Midianites. And you're like, why? Why the camp of the Midianites? Because God wanted Gideon to find encouragement. Now, Now keep in mind that this is the enemy's camp. This is a very scary thing to do. It's a hard thing for Gideon to do, but in this leading from God is where Gideon is encouraged, reassured through an enemy encampment. The place of great danger is where his faith is built, where it's lifted, and it led Gideon to worship God. And this faith building and encouragement was contagious to his army. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 4, God tells David, go, Arise, go to Keilah. Keilah was in Judah, a a place of great danger to David because Saul was after him. And even though it was Saul's job as king to protect Keilah from the Philistines, he didn't. But saving Keilah looks like a crazy thing to do. See, David only had 400 men, right? 400 inexperienced soldiers, 400 men of not so good character. And he was going to expose himself on two enemy fronts. He's going to expose himself to Saul. He's going to expose himself to the Philistines. But David listened to God. And he saw the need of the people. David was willing to risk his life for the people. Endangering himself to obey the command of God and to meet the needs of the people, even against the counsel of his own men, because he knew that God told him to do so. This wasn't an easy decision for David. If you read the story there, you see how he inquires of the Lord constantly saying, God, are you sure? Like, This is kind of crazy. Are you sure? And it was an unusual request by God, but God promised that the Philistines would be delivered into his hand. And by David following, it it gave him and his ragtag crews this confidence in God and in his commands. And another great Bible character who was told to arise, go, was Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter seventeen, verse nine, God tells Elijah to go to tzat Tzuraphath was a Gentile city, and it, it was a, a, a challenging and unusual move for Elijah to take because earlier in the chapter we find that Elijah prayed for this drought, right? And he prayed for this drought because it was to battle the all. And then through this th- through this prayer and through this drought, it led him to this brook in Cherith, which in turn led him to Tzuraphath. And we find that God has moved him from his home to Jezreel, to Cherith, to Saraphath, But Saraphath is where the wicked queen Jezebel is from. This was enemy territory. This is where Baal is worshipped. This is Baal territory. So this took great faith from Elijah. But you notice God was leading him step by step, right? And at each step of faith, it made him stronger. It made him have more faith. Then in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 17, God tells Elijah, arise, go to meet Ahab. Now, Ahab was this amoral, brutal, and wicked king. And he gained land through betraying people, to lying to people, murdering. And God commissioned Elijah to confront him with murder and theft. Tough thing to do. Because the king can say, can you kill this guy? He's talking to me and I don't like it. And the third time God tells Elijah to arise, go is second Kings chapter one, verse three. God tells him to meet up with the messengers of the king of Samaria and the messengers were those of King Ahaziah, who supposedly believed in the God of Israel. But he sure didn't live like it. He, he was seeking Beelzebub rather than the Lord. Well, Elijah's message was to tell King Ahaziah that he was going to die. Not a pleasant message to deliver. But God sometimes tells us to deliver tough messages. Now, God tells Jeremiah to arise, go on multiple occasions to various places. He tells Ezekiel to arise, go. Jesus told the paralytic and and the leper to arise, go. Other folks in the New Testament were told the same. Philip, Ananias, Paul, Peter. So many people in the Bible being told, arise, go. And whether it's to a place of, of worship Or to intercede for people or a place of blessing, a place of encouragement, danger, confrontation, whatever it is, when God tells us arise, go, it is his commission for us to get up and go to be obedient to his call and do what he says. And sometimes we can find it to be tough, but isn't it exciting to be commissioned by God? I think there are many people who would be honored to be commissioned by by the president to be an ambassador to another country or serve on his administration. But imagine being commissioned by God. To be his ambassador, to be part of his team, isn't that exciting? And and he does commission us, each one of us. And the heart of Christianity isn't centered upon myself, but it's to be focused on others. And oftentimes we get so self-centered about our own spiritual life that we forget what God has instructed us to do. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is that place that people see as, as beyond rescue. It's that place of danger that's beyond repair. That there's no hope. There's no blessing there. And it's not simply a location. It's a culture. It's a people group. It's an ideology. It's a philosophy. It's a lifestyle that is so anti what your faith stands for. It's that family member, it's that friend or loved one that thinks that your faith is an absolute joke. It's that coworker or colleague who thinks you're crazy for believing what you believe. And God says, that's where we're going. And when you get there, God says, I have a new message for you. Back in Jonah chapter one, verse two, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. And yes, Nineveh was a wicked place. This is the the powerful empire that destroyed the northern tribes of Israel. And they made sure that any future foe would think twice about coming against them by making the the dead that they just killed a public spectacle on the roadside, whether they just put them on spigots or, or just piled them up. And you would think that they deserve judgment from the God of Israel, that if any city in the world that at that time deserved judgment from a holy God, it would be Nineveh. But now we find that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Notice the tone change. First, the word of the Lord says to cry out against it. And now the word of the Lord says to preach to it. Why? I don't think Nineveh has changed right from the time that Jonah received his first set of instructions to the second set. But I do think that Jonah has changed. And the word of the Lord is telling Jonah, things actually haven't changed. I still want you to go to Nineveh. I, I, uh, I want you to listen carefully to me this time as to what I want you to say when you get there. So, so why the difference in the instructions? I think it's God's way of leading us. Perhaps the first set of instructions was just too much for Jonah. And Jonah disobediently rejects the call the first time around. But maybe the slight change in instructions made it more possible for Jonah. God leading him a step at a time, just like a good parent. Just like he did for Elijah by leading him from his home to Jezreel, to Cherith, to set And he often does that with us. I think God sometimes tests us and allows us to see, see more. But often God only reveals it a step at a time and not the whole picture. Do any of you find that frustrating? Anybody? God, what do you want me to do? Just tell me. I'll do it. Yeah, right. You would not. Right. Perhaps if God showed you the whole thing, you'd be just like Jonah. You'd run away. You'd hide It's like, hey, um, Albert, I-, I want you to-, to leave your posh, comfortable job in San Francisco, overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge, Angel Island, Alcatraz. And I want to I want you to help start a church in funktown. For those of you that don't know, this is funktown. And overlooking drug deals um, that happen in the parking lot there and solicitation of prostitutes on the street over there and some shootings every now and then. Yeah, right? I, I mean, I, I hope that if God told me that, that, that I would just say, like, whatever you want, God, I'm right there. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. But I don't know for sure if I would. If, if, if He showed me all this stuff and what I had before and, and, and kind of like living kind of comfortably... Looking back at it now, it, it was just a step-by-step moment of disobedience, of, of, um, of just kind of going, going with the flow. And um, if he showed me that whole picture, I think it would have just freaked me out. I'm like, no way. God, I don't want to put my family through that. That's scary over there. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And you notice Jonah starts getting things right now. Things were getting fouled up when he was disobedient, when when he was running from God, and when he was hiding from God. But now we see that he's learned his lesson, and he obeys. Isn't this like a lot of us? How we mess up so badly, but God gives us a chance to follow him over and over again. Times you're, you're tempted to do something contrary to God, but you choose not to. Or times you know what God wants you to do, and you actually do it. Perhaps it's when you want to act out in anger against someone, but you exercise self-control. Or you show kindness to someone who has done everything they they can to to make you act otherwise. Maybe you want to act out in lust, but you flee from it. Or you you have just disciplined yourself in such a way that you stay away from those things that cause you to go down that road. Maybe you're tempted to manipulate a situation and be less than honest about things, but, but you show restraint and you don't act on it. Or you just consistently practice being a truth teller. And those times of obedience are are really pleasing to God. And I think it's important for for some of you to hear this because we often beat ourselves up and we beat each other up about what we're not doing. And in the past recent weeks, I've been talking with people who struggle with anger and lust. Two of the very most common uncontrolled desires that that brings a lot of of shame into people's lives, a lot of guilt into people's lives. And, And for some, um, some of you guys, you guys are having some victories in your struggles. There are times that you guys are doing good. To hear about how you guys are desiring prayer or seeking accountability, fighting against temptation, uh, wanting and getting help. It's great. It's awesome that you're doing that. And, and I know that there are times that you fail. We, we all fail. But God is so delighted in our obedience. And some of you need to hear that. I, I know I need to hear that. When I talk to mentors of mine about things I'm going through, I find that I hold myself to some pretty high standards, and that others are extremely critical of me as well. And and all I need to hear from them is, You're doing a good job. That's all I need to hear. And and to hear that they're praying for me, that, that they see me doing God's will, just to hear that from people that I know love me, that I know care for me, that I know have good intentions for me, just to hear, Good job. You're being obedient. And obedience is the key. And we see Jonah obeying God, heading to Nineveh. But obedience doesn't necessarily mean easy. Jonah being obedient doesn't change Nineveh. Nineveh is still a very scary place to him. And as Jonah arrives to Nineveh, he gets a reality check of where he's at. Verse 3, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah walks into town and delivers a short message, which some of you may be wishing for right now. And it's, it's not all that detailed. He doesn't even mention God or, or, that he, or that he's a messenger of God. He doesn't even tell them exactly why they'll be overthrown. And some scholars believe that Jonah said more and that, that this was just a summary of what he said and, and the emphasis of this message was that Nineveh was going to be overthrown. Regardless if it's short or long, the people of Nineveh listened. Verse five. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, I want you to put yourself in, in the audience's shoes or, or sandals, actually, um, that is hearing this story for the first time. So you're you're an Israelite. Imagine you're an Israelite. They're, they're telling you this Jonah story and, and you're hearing this story. You're hearing the story of a people who, who we think have no chance of coming to know God. Actually, people that we actually consider enemies. And we'd be thinking that there's no way that these people will ever come to believe in God. And actually, we've already been challenged in the story before, since a ship full of these pagan Gentile sailors came to know God in the chapter before, and they actually came to worship the God of Israel. And those that we see that are so far away from God are actually coming to Him. And the people we see as least likely to believe in God are coming to faith in God. And I think we, like, like some of the original audiences hearing this story, struggle with the same thing, where we've already labeled some people as unsalvageable, that there's no way they'll believe in God and even want a relationship with God, that it's a mission that's impossible. And perhaps we don't have faith in ourselves, that we don't know what to say or don't know enough about what we believe to share it. Or maybe we're intimidated with, with that person or persons or circumstances. Or we, we don't know that culture well enough. Or I, or I don't even have my own life together. So, so what reason or how can I possibly share about God if I don't have my things together? And whatever the reasons we see, um, they're just reasons of impossibility. We just see impossibility. And often I, I pray for my family and, and that they, they allow themselves to have a relationship with Jesus. And most of my family does not know Jesus. And the person closest to my heart that doesn't know Jesus is my mother. And I've been praying for her for over 20 years. And if you've been praying for something or someone for over 20 years, sometimes you start to lose hope. And you kind of doubt what you're praying for is actually going to happen. You start to swim in the sea of impossibility. But whenever we find ourselves going down that path, we have to remember that God is great. That the impossible is possible with God. Back to verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They believed God. And you notice that the belief resulted in action. They did something from this newfound belief. They fasted and they put on sackcloth. See, See, there was a change. There was a difference as they tried to get right with God. They fasted and put on sackcloth. I think we all know what fasting is, abstaining from food and drink in this case. So let's talk a little bit about sackcloth. Sackcloth was was a thick, abrasive, coarse material cloth, normally made of goat hair, that was was worn as a sign of repentance. And these actions of fasting and wearing sackcloth were, were signs that the Ninevites were rejecting their earthly comforts, that they were rejecting their earthly pleasures. Now, does that sound like something a prideful person would do? Is that something that you would do? And you'll notice that even the people of privilege and power are doing this. Verse six, then the word then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The same vicious dictator who ravaged the northern tribes, gets off of his throne, his ruling seat, takes off his royal robes, puts on sackcloth, Sits in ashes before the mercy of God. That's impossible. That's just the beginning of the story. Verse 7. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will return, will turn and relent, and turn away from his fierce anger, so that we we may not perish? God is causing these rulers to change the very laws of the land, And, and you know that. You know what's funny? These changes in the law are followed by a question mark. Look at verse nine. It ends with a question mark. Have you heard of such a thing? There's a new law now. No more cell phone usage while you're driving. No more texting. Maybe people will follow it and not get into any more accidents. I think. Maybe. You end the law with a question mark? I don't think so, right? Anyway, back in the day, a king's proclamation was like a word from a deity. It was conclusive. There was no debate about it. It was absolute. There was no questions about it. But we find that this proclamation closes as an open question. Isn't that strange? It's as if the king is proclaiming that even the laws of the land are now dependent on God's mercy. It's intentionally left open because they're open to what God wants to do with them. And here's another funny thing. let Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. That's funny. I laugh at people who dress up their dogs. And I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing with you. It's some, sometimes it's just ridiculous. Like other times I can see it legitimate. Like if your dog was not bred for cold weather and you were living in a cold place, legitimate. Chihuahuas in San Francisco, legitimate. But when it's a dog that has been bred for cold weather and there's like a sweater vest on them, it's funny. And like a Labrador Retriever, I have one. And I confess that I used to dress him up because it was cute. Like I, we, had, we even had a hoodie for him. It, um, it's funny, but they don't need clothes, right? He, he's a lab, for goodness sake. And they're, they're originally from Newfoundland. Anybody know where Newfoundland is? It's like the northern eastmost of Canada. It, it's heck of cold there. And they were bred to jump in the water. They're like, do like pool fishing net. They don't need clothes. Anyway. So can you imagine getting this decree? So you hear this proclamation, you look, at out, look out at your camels, and you're like, Freddy. Yes, Dad? Do you mind putting on some goat hair on, on those camels? Uh, the king ordered it. Dad, you can't be serious. It's like 120 degrees out there. I'm serious. I'm as serious as the desert heat. Go put out that, that goat fur out there, whatever, goat hair. So this is quite a sight, right? Cows, sheeps, horses, donkeys, all covered in goat hair. But that's how passionate the Ninevites were about turning their lives over to God. And even if it's funny and it doesn't make any sense at all, it shows how fervent they were about changing their lives. Verse 10, then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. What a great comedy showing us the heart of God and how the impossible is possible with God. And God brings Jonah back up from way, 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 way down where death is mocked and where sin's consequences don't get the last laugh, or rather God gets the last laugh. That's because he overcame the grave and he reached us and, and, and rescued us from sin's consequences. And God delivered Nineveh from the depths of their sin. And the joke is on those of us who think that God's reach is beyond certain people. There's no one that is unreachable to God. Anything is possible to God. Even things that look so grim, so hopeless. His grace and mercy are beyond measure. And the lives he touches are surprising because we think it's impossible. And God doesn't look at Jonah. He doesn't look at the pagan Gentile sailors. He doesn't look at the Ninevites as mission impossibles. He looks at them with a great heart of love. One that desires to pull people who are heading downward. And and even when they are down at the most low point, He's present. He's there. And He looks to rescue us from our sin. He looks to rescue us from death. And He looks to make what is impossible to us possible. And I share that I've been praying for my family for, for, for many years, especially my mom. My mom's still not there yet. But I still have hope that someday she will want a relationship with Jesus as her Lord. And in praying for my family, I got to share the, share the gospel with my paternal grandmother on her deathbed about 10 years ago. And I, I love that woman. Um, she lived in Guangzhou, China at the time. And, and I um, only got to see her face to face six times in my life. Just six. And we got to talk on the phone and write letters. But, but I only got to be with her six separate times in my life. And all of those six times were, were so precious to me. And I remember on my visits that I wanted to sleep in her bed. Um, uh, because I, I just I wanted to be with her all the time. So even as a kid and then uh, moving on as an adult and especially after my grandfather had died, because I I just didn't want any time to go by where I wasn't with her. Um, And so my last visit that I was there is before the deathbed one um, that I was there. I, I, I was wanting to sneak into the bed with her. And she wouldn't let me. She'd kick me out and say that I was silly. Like, you're a grown man. What are you doing? And, and so, so then often I would just like pull out the cot and just sleep right outside her door, wait for her to wake up so that we can hang out. Um, and when my grandfather was dying, I didn't get the chance to share the gospel with him one last time. I shared it with him earlier, um, but I didn't get to do it when he was dying. And I was determined that that wasn't going to happen with my grandmother. So when we were told she was very ill, my dad and I, we, we flew over there and we just prayed. We prayed that the window of opportunity to share the gospel with her one last time would be there. And, and that, please, God, just just grant us that. And so while at her bedside, we we'd communicate um, with me talking and, and her blinking. Uh, she wasn't able to speak anymore. So so one blink was yes. Two blinks was no. And So we talked and, and I got to share with her the gospel one last time. She was still alive. She was still alert. She just couldn't speak. Um, I told her Jesus loved her and I wanted and and wanted to greet her in heaven and that he wants to to take away the sins that are are with her and make her a new person in heaven. And I told her that that I loved her and and that I wanted to see her again. And it's very I don't think it's very common in Chinese culture to tell someone you love love them. But um, I, I did anyway. I didn't care. And I asked if she, if she would pray in her mind with me and, and, and in her heart to accept Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And, and she blinked once. And that was the last time I got to see her face to face. But I'm hopeful that I'm going to see her again. And sometimes I get teary-eyed thinking about her because I, I want so badly for my wife and my daughters to get a chance to meet this beautiful person. Someone who, even though I only got to see six times, I knew she loved me. At the instant that I met her, I felt her love for me. And she gives me hope that it can happen with the rest of my family. I get a smile thinking about what God does and allows because from time to time we're told she was probably not going to make it. And, and you guys might not make it to, to be here. You can just stay home. Some of my aunts would be saying, yet my dad and I were given the chance to be with her that day. And anything is possible with God. My senior year in college, I was an RA and and one of the roommates I had was an international student uh, assigned to live with me and another roommate in our apartment. And his English wasn't very good, but but it was better than my Mandarin. And he was he was this staunch atheist from Taiwan, like proud to be an atheist. And uh, he was a a former captain in the Taiwanese army. And his specialty was was bombs and halo. Does, Does anyone know what halo is? It's high altitude, uh, uh, low observability jumping. So they jump out from like space because they don't want to be detected. And at the very last moment, they open their parachute. Very fun stuff, I guess. So, but then the very first thing he does when he comes into the apartment is he's looking around in the kitchen. He's like, I can make a bomb out of that. I can make a bomb out of that. I'm like, who is this guy? Like, he's just talking about making bombs in here. And no, I wasn't scared. Um, and he was a pretty bright guy I and mean, he majored in computer science and he would hack into different things Like in his room was like the whole wall was like computer stuff and he would be hacking into different things and then and then he'd call my roommate, roommate and I in and he'd be like hey look what I got into I was like I don't think you're supposed to be in there he's like yeah I can do a lot of things in here like, we're leaving and, and so um Anyway, my roommate and I, we, we prayed for him all the time. And we, we talked with him all year, all school year long about Jesus and, and not in an obnoxious way, but, but whenever it was appropriate. And, and we, we loved on this guy and showed that that uh, we cared for him. And for his birthday, we surprised him and we kidnapped him out of class. Um, we were kind of scared because I didn't know if he was like self-destruct or something. But um, <laughs> we, we, we threw him in my car. And we put we put a put a dress shirt on him and a tie and we we brought him to the L.A. Philharmonic because we remembered like um, from way, way in the beginning of the year that he expressed to us that he he wanted to go there sometimes. So we remembered that. And but even though we became friends and we talked a lot, almost like every night just to kind of talk about how things were going and all that sort of stuff. It didn't seem like he was ever going to want a relationship with Jesus ever. Never even came close. Well, then one night he came home and he said that he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. My roommate and I are like, You're the same guy. And um, he was talking with some of his other computer science friends who are also international students. And he went to church with them. He never wanted to do anything spiritual. He never wanted to go to church with us. He didn't he didn't want to do any of that stuff. And it, and it makes me laugh because when I think that things are impossible, God shows me otherwise. And it took almost the entire academic year for that to happen. But it did. And in my office, he gave me this like, Chinese opera mask thing. I still keep it in there as a reminder. Just to, It makes me laugh. Like, he came to the Lord. And the joke is on me and, and on those of us who don't believe that all things are possible with God. And the joke is not on the faithful or the obedient. The joke is on the pessimists. The joke is on the cynics. The doubters, the skeptics who don't believe that with God, all things are possible. And when we don't believe that anything is possible with God, that's when the joke's on us. And the story of Jonah directs us to what Jesus is all about. Jesus, who loves the unlovable, reaches the unreachable, touches the untouchable. Jesus' heart is for those who are like the Ninevites. That family member or friend who seems so far from God. That culture or circumstance, that lifestyle that seems so impossible to overcome. So the question for us is whether we will go to our own Nineveh, as Jonah eventually did. Will you pray in situations that seem so grave, so grim, so deep in sin, beyond hope? Will you start to look at community differently? Will you start to make uh, that person or situation that seems so impossible to reach, A top priority in your prayer life. And we're not talking about forced agendas or forced conversions. Let's just listen to God's leading. He leads us and step by step. He's going to provide the things for us to say, the opportunities for us. And whenever we get there, he will lead us and he'll give us the right message to deliver. So will we go when God instructs us? Who is... uh, God, you know, who, who, who is all about making the, the possible out of impossibility. He wants us to join him. So let's go to Nineveh with boldness, with courage. When instructed by God, even though it looks scary, it looks dangerous, it looks uncomfortable. Let's not run the other way. Let's not hide or just sit on the beach because Jonah could have done that after being thrown up on shore. Like after giving the other chance, blah, he lands on the beach like I'm going to go surfing. He didn't, right? God gave him another chance. God always gives us another chance. So let's be people of obedience. He gives us another chance and act upon obedience and his instructions to go to that Nineveh in our life. Let's pray. God, thank you for second chances. Thank you for your patience with us and how you lead us just step by step in our lives. We ask God that um, as you tell us to go to the different Ninevehs in our life, that some of them can be scary, some of of them um, unpredictable, um, some of them uh, to people that we need to tell difficult things to. Um, Other places uh, actually we look forward to going to, like places of blessing or places of encouragement, Um, whatever that Nineveh is in our life, I pray that you would um, just make us receptive to how you want us to go about it. Make us sensitive to your spirit as to what those next steps are. In Jesus' name, amen.